You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name is Trent Fleskins, your host as always. And today, it's just me. We are doing a Q&A session these questions keep piling up and coming in a lot quicker than they used to and I really appreciate everyone as always listening along and getting more involved as the months go on with all these fantastic and really interestingly more astute questions coming through. They get more detailed every single time and that just shows hopefully that people are listening along, they're learning along the way as well. So thank you again and to all those who haven't sent a question in, uh, you can do so by emailing through via the website or at inquiries at perthpropertyshow.com.au. I'll get straight in. And today I've picked my nine favorite questions that I think represent a lot of uh, listeners' thoughts at the moment, and especially ones that I can add the most value to. And the first question is, Trent, I saw a recent article about the suburbs that are selling the fastest in Western Australia. Does this mean they've also got the best growth? And that question has come from Millie. Millie, that's a really good point because you'd like to think that the suburbs that are selling the fastest are also the ones with the most demand against supply and therefore all else things being equal, suburb prices should be going up. And there is actually a really strong correlation between that. So you're on the right track there. For all those people listening along, the fastest suburb to sell in the last few months has been Inglewood, followed by Joondana, followed by Wembley, which is a mainstay, Kingsley, Myrie, Bedford, Heathridge, which is always in the top 10, Willerton, Palmyra and Woodlands. So a lot of those suburbs we see a lot in the top 10 with regards to fastest selling suburbs. And generally these are suburbs that if they're not the highest growth, they've certainly got the most strength for long-term growth and also protecting against any falls in the future. And if you rattle through some of those suburbs, these really are those ones that saw minimal loss in the last seven years. And a lot of them actually held their ground in the most part, especially for those owner-occupied properties. And those are the properties that are selling the quickest. We're not talking about just suburbs. We're also talking about property types. The interesting thing to note about those suburbs is most of them are family suburbs, R20 suburb, or at least a very high concentration of R20 properties in them. And that obviously reflects the fact that the property type that is selling the fastest right now with the most demand is the owner-occupied property, that four by two with a big backyard. People were moving away from that over time. They're now moving back towards that due to the effects COVID has had on all of our lives. So Millie, really good question. I would say you're not too wrong when it comes to the correlation between speed of sale and growth, but it's not perfect in terms of this wouldn't be your top 10 list, but they would certainly be up there in the top 30, top 40. Thanks, Millie. Next question comes from Doug. So I have $400,000 saved and want to invest in a property. In a rising market, would you buy one property with that money or would you split that cash across maybe buying three properties and diversify your risk across those three properties? Look, Doug, I assume you're also including 80% loan with this as well, obviously. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to buy three properties with $400,000 anywhere in Perth. So if we go along with that assumption, what you'd be able to do with $400,000 as a single purchase would most likely be purchasing somewhere around that $1.4, $1.5 million, about $300,000 as your 20% deposit. And the extra $100,000 would count towards stamp duty and other associated costs with a little bit left over. So that's about where you're at, 1.5 mil. What you're buying for 1.5 mil is, to be honest, a lot of those suburbs we just spoke about in that top 10 fastest selling list, somewhere like Wembley, uh, definitely Joondana, Inglewood, 
Kingsley would you'd be able to buy two properties in Kingsley. Palmyra, you'd be getting a really great property in that suburb as well. And if I could flip it to the other side, you, you'd be looking at buying probably three properties worth $500,000 with a $100,000 de- deposit and about a $25,000 to $30,000 stamp duty cost on top of that. As long as you can get the loan for the rest of that cash, probably with proposed rental income, that's going to be able to buy you about three $500,000 properties. Now, that would be the question to ask. Would you buy one $1.5 million property or three $500,000 properties? And there's a couple of considerations here. Firstly, because of the way that stamp duty scales up, you're actually going to pay more for that $1.5 million stamp duty than three sets of $500,000. Not so much more that it would affect your decision, but it's something that you should keep in mind. But generally, a $1.5 million property is a property in a blue chip suburb. It's somewhere where there will generally be an ongoing level of strong demand and not that many people looking to sell at any point in the market. So as long as you're buying a property that's in the middle of a rung for somewhere like Wembley, for example, you're always going to be protected in that market because there will generally be buyers in that space. However, at the $500,000 space, that's the price point around the median house price where when the market drops, it's one of the first to go and that 500,000 turns into 400,000 very quickly. Unfortunately, we saw that between 2015 and 2020. So my advice to you would be in a market like this, I would be buying into the most expensive area as possible. And if I can find an owner-occupied property as well that possibly had future subdivision potential, just as a backup on intrinsic value, and that would be where I would go. Why? Just because it's gotten to $1.5 million over time for a reason, and that wealth gap continues to widen in Perth. It's more likely that you're going to see higher growth percentage over time in the more blue chip suburbs than you are below the median house price. And that's always been the case in the past and will probably never change going into the future. So get yourself into that suburb and no one will ever be able to take that away from you. Third question is from Steve. This is a really interesting one. Steve says, the city of Kalamunda is trying to charge me 10% public open space contribution to turn one lot into four, but the property is zoned to allow up to eight lots. What can I do about this? It sounds like a ripoff. Steve, it, this is a ripoff. It's a massive ripoff that a lot of cities are now taking hold of. The reason they're allowed to do this is because the state government's design control policies that came in in the last couple of years essentially say that the cities can't recommend a public open space contribution of 10% of the land value unless you're developing five or more properties. Now, the only way that a city can recommend a public open space contribution underneath that amount is if they have a public open space strategy where they can demonstrate that maybe there's not enough green space parks reserves in that suburb and that funds should be contributed by developers, even in brownfield sites, existing suburbs, to go towards keeping up those parks or buying properties to make new parks. Now, the ridiculous thing about it is in most of these brownfield suburbs, we'll never go towards buying properties to create new parks. It will mainly go towards paying more staff uh, in a general pool to possibly upkeep the existing parks in a better condition. What I would say about this is that this is something that on a state basis needs to change. Charging a 10% public open space contribution on a property that is worth $700,000 means that the city is charging a tax of $70,000 to that developer to turn a property from one into four. Whereas if they were to turn a property from one into three, they would not be charged that tax. That $70,000 is generally equal to or more than the total of every other cost to subdivide. So suddenly, a mum and dad developer's subdivision costs have gone from $60,000 to $130,000. And that $70,000 difference is nearly most of most private developers' profit. 
So what happens is the city thinks they're being really smart here and being able to gouge a whole bunch of money out of private developers, thinking they're making millions of dollars every time they do a subdivision so that it can go towards their general fund. But what it's really doing is disincentivizing private developers to subdivide at the density they plan to achieve through their local housing strategy. So when the city promises the state that they've zoned the property to allow for four lots to be created, and then a private developer comes in looking to create four lots, if that city comes through and says, no, we're going to charge you a public open space contribution of 10% of the land value if you subdivide it four, but we won't charge it to you if we subdivide into three, what do you think the private developer is going to do? He's going to underdevelop the site. It will never be able to be developed again any more than that. And he will either do a side-by-side or a triplex. So the city and the state don't win. This is a policy failure by the state government. It's something that I'm actually personally taking up to the West Australian Planning Commission at the moment, Steve, because it is something I'm quite passionate about. It directly contradicts the state policy of urban infill. So watch this space. But right now, yes, there are councils out there who are now trying to gouge us for... 10% of the land total land value if we do possibly a triplex in the city of Stirling in a suburb like Joondana for example or a quad in the city of Kalamunda and in the town of Bassendine it's also when you go to a quad development too but it's also interesting to note that there are still a lot of cities who aren't charging that and those are cities like Joondalup, Swan, Bayswater they're not looking at the moment to charge uh, these public open space contributions. Watch this space again though place like city of Canning has a draft policy out right now looking to try and gadget at a triple x as well again really misguided policy but hopefully we can make a difference going forward about this because it really is going to be a darth on the state's ability to reach urban infill targets if they don't do something about this great question steve something i'm really passionate about all right jenny asks i'm looking at doing a subdivision in the city of bassendine do i need to get a geotechnical report Jenny, generally you don't need to get a geotechnical report in the city of Bassendine. It's not something they will always mandate carte blanche. However, if you are really close to the river, you might actually be in the floodplain zone, the 100-year floodplain zone. You can look that up online if you Google uh, 100-year flood zone and see if your property is in that mapping space. If you are, you really should get a geotechnical report to see what's going on underneath the ground and confirm whether your site is an A-class site or if it's not. There are, however, other cities where they do mandate a geotechnical report on any property in that city if you're looking to do a subdivision. One of those is the city of Gosnells. City Armidale looks for it a lot as well. And these are cities that have a lot of clay underneath and have had issues with stormwater and drainage for a very long time. City of Kalamunda also has some issues there, especially up in High Wycombe, Kalamunda, where they are in the hills and again, a lot of clay. So whilst in a lot of places where you're quite confident there is you know, good Bassendine sand, good sandy site somewhere not close to the hills or not close to the river, you'll be pretty safe to not have to do a geotechnical report. It's often something you should actually look into. Now, they cost about $3,500 and you'd be going to companies like Prompt or Structair to do it. Great question. Next question comes from Mike. Mike asks, how's the rental market going? We're not hearing as much in the news about it these days. Has it cooled down or has the media just gotten bored of reporting on it? Mike, this is uh, that's a good question because the reality is if you look at the numbers, the rental market hasn't really cooled down. It's still sitting at a vacancy rate of about 1% and stock on market's very steady. Weekly listings are very steady still. So it's steady at a really chronically tight space. What we've found, however, is there is a little bit less pressure on that demand side. People aren't as crazy and FOMO about picking their rentals now. And I think that's because we've passed that big hump of everyone having their leases pulled from under them at the end of March. 
so things have started to settle down a lot of those people have released into the same place or found a new place however we are really still in a very chronically tight market and because of that we will still see rental prices keep ticking up over time one of the big reasons we've seen a little bit of a cooling on that pressure is is simply because our borders are shut We've gone from having a thousand people a week as a capped number come into the state internationally to just 250 people. So there's 750 people that probably come in to rent, not coming in right now, not putting pressure on that leasing market every week. But also even from a domestic basis, we don't have people coming in right now because most of the borders are shut. So right now it's a little bit of an eye of the storm and it's really a time if you are looking to get into a rental property, cop that increase in the price because you'll have a lot more pressure if you're looking to find another property very soon when the borders open up. Thanks for that question. Next question comes from Daisy. Daisy asks, I'm getting close to finance date and I don't have my approval yet. What can I do? I don't want to lose this house. Daisy, hopefully we've gotten to you quick enough with this response, but for everyone else listening as well, if you are getting close to your agreed finance date on your contract and you still haven't got finance, if you're going through your mortgage broker, you should be on to them all the time. Uh, They should be able to get an escalation within a couple of days of that finance date to get the credit team to actually look at the file if it hasn't been already and get that approval. If you don't get that approval and they come back with extra conditions, extra requirements to get that approval, then you really need to get on that quick smart and get that broker to get it in with a new escalation. However, even if you are still a couple of days out from finance approval, it is really important to have an open discourse with the selling agent and the seller's settlement agent because what you'll find right now is that most sellers and settlement agents have been through this for a while. Now, they recognize that the market for finance is really tough. The banks are struggling. This happens to them quite a lot, the selling agent. So that's not the first rodeo. They've seen it and they'll appreciate if you're upfront about that. And what I would be then doing, if you're a couple of days out, look to get an agreement with the seller so that you can get a one or two week extension to give your broker a bit more time to get that approval through. You might find that the approval is conditionally approved, but the valuation hasn't come back yet. And that again is another party holding up your approval. Be on the front foot, give them straight honest feedback as to what's going on. And generally they'll give you that extra week or two. The last position you want to be in is getting to that date, not having had that communication and the seller in a market like this where there will be other buyers knocking down the door can terminate your contract in favor of possibly an even better offer that is still sitting there on the table. Next question comes from Raj. Raj asks, my builder just slapped me with a $30,000 price increase. On top of that, they're telling me it will take two months to get a slab down and three more months to get the walls up. Am I getting screwed here or is this normal right now? Raj, unfortunately, this is actually pretty normal. We haven't seen this in the building industry uh, really ever, especially in my professional career. But with those that I speak to have been around a lot longer than me, they haven't seen this either. Price rises is something they've never had to impose on clients before and it's something that clients have never seen before. So a $30,000 price rise is a big price rise and it's one that you're most likely seeing on a building contract of $300,000 to $400,000. If your building contract is less than that, then you should be taking it up with your builder and asking, please do show your bill of quantities and prove to me where all these price rises are coming from. And that's what you can do. You can sit down with that builder Uh, even if you are outside of your finance period and have that conversation. The only way you can't be hit with a price increase is if you've already signed a contract that doesn't have that increase in it and then you've gone and gotten finance within the agreed date, which is normally about 45 working days, nine weeks from that contract date. However, 
generally two things have happened in this market. One, you've either signed that contract really early back in December last year to get the grants and then obviously it's taken a few months to get DA and you know now at a stage where you can be ready to build, the builder most likely has the right there to charge an increase or you haven't signed the contract in that time frame. You've signed it in a reasonable time which is about now. You're nearly ready to build. Everything's come through and the builder has sent that contract through to you with a price increase. In that situation, the builder is within the rights to provide you an increase as long as they can prove the extra cost to them. You then need to go and get finance within generally that nine-week period. Otherwise, they can come back again with that increase. So I would say if you aren't happy with what's going on, make sure that you have a really good read of your contract and of your rights. And if not, go and speak to the ombudsman about that. Now, with regards to how long it takes to get slabs down and how long it takes to get walls up, two months is a pretty normal time right now to get slabs down. What you need to remember is that the building industry is doubled in the space of a year and that's coming off a really small base of trades out there and a lot of those trades are now getting pulled out to the mines who are starting to pay bigger wages again so two months is a pretty reasonable time frame we were even seeing that last year and three months is is generally a pretty median time frame we're seeing after that for a lot of our builds unfortunately to get those walls up because that one trade that is most chronic in terms of availability is the bricklayer trade and uh, as you would know they're charging some pretty exorbitant prices right now for their services and unfortunately that is a reflection of the fact that there just aren't enough brickies in the state to do the work not having international state borders open is the main reason that this has occurred because generally when the building industry picks up the state government will allow four, five, seven visas to open up where new trades can come in to fill that gap. Unfortunately, it hasn't happened and that's why prices have gone up and timeframes have also increased. So you're not getting screwed, but what I would say is make sure that you are onto your builder on a weekly basis to make sure you're not getting continually kicked down the line because you aren't the squeaky wheel. If that. Next question comes from Davor. Davor asks, are the builders still open to new business? Is it even worth building right now? Davor, yeah, the builders are actually open to new business. A lot of them are. I would be looking at going to the mid and small tier builders who haven't had that massive influx of work that's come through just based on their marketing and their big brands. A lot of the guys I'm speaking to these days in that mid-tier are actually getting a little bit quiet on the front end because people who are going to build last year, this year, next year have all been sucked into last year as a bit of a vacuum because of the grants. So it's getting a bit quiet and their front end of design and costing actually has quite a good bandwidth right now. So uh, if you are looking to build, you've done your numbers and it stacks up, recognize that build prices have gone up about 15, 20% versus the numbers last year. But if it works for you still or you're building that family home and you're not that price sensitive, it's actually not a bad time to be getting some face time on the front end at least with regards to having that build designed really well. Now, when it comes to the actual build, you would have thought that if you're starting now, you're probably still about seven, eight, nine months away from the construction side of things happening. And we would all hope that in seven, eight, nine months time from now, the industry has leveled out just a little bit. It still will be overworked. It still will be overpriced, but hopefully nowhere near what it is right now, which is really a chronic problem. And finally, my, our last question for today, question number nine, Simon asks, building inspectors, are they worth it and what do they cost? Simon, if there was ever a time where building inspectors were worth it, I would say it would be now. A lot of trades that are getting work right now, given the builders are so desperate, uh, the worst trades available, the ones that wouldn't have been getting work even nine months ago, and the attention to detail, the, the quality, it really just isn't there. And unfortunately, that ownership of their work isn't there with a lot of builds out there right now, and that means that you need to keep them accountable. Now, if you're not a licensed or registered builder, 
uh, and you don't have the skills to pick the thousand things up in that house, and that's not an over-exaggeration, then you need to invest in a building inspector, someone who's got a great reputation and someone who has seen this hundreds of times before. Now, they cost between $1,500 and $3,000 generally to do that, and I'll be getting them in once before the roof tiles are on and second at the end when you do your practical completion inspection. Now, is that $1,500 to $3,000 worth it? Well, I would say 100% it is. If you're doing a build that's $250,000, $500,000, spend that little bit of money to have someone who is independent and has really experienced eyes come in and make that builder be accountable for their work and touch up every last bit that you may not have recognized, especially if it's a structural issue then it definitely is worth it and you should be doing it every day of the week. And that's across the market generally, but really specifically now when the trade base is so rushed and also we're dipping at the bottom of the barrel for trades right now too. So that's a really great question to finish on. Guys, just generally, this is a really good time to be buying. If you're, if you're still listening, uh, it means you're still interested and you're still looking. And whilst it might seem like it is still really hard to buy, I'm very confident that the second those borders open up, given the fact that all other data points remain constant, the second the borders open up, prices will go through the roof as a function of the fact that 8,000 properties on the market and 900 transactions per week is going to be dwarfed by the amount of people coming back into this state when we are no longer limited to 250 people per week coming in. Guys, I'll leave it there for this week and I look forward to having a really interesting chat next week with our next guest. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!